Welcome to Sales Talk for CEOs. I'm glad you're here. I'll be interviewing CEOs who have successfully scaled their B2B sales organization. In each episode, I'll start by uncovering the sales background of each CEO, dig into the strategies they use to build their sales organization, and wrap it up with what the future holds. We'll cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of scaling a sales organization. I'm your host, Alice Hyman. All right, today we have a special guest, someone who I've known for quite a while now, um, due to a mutual friend, Gerhard Schwatner, and the um, uh, Sales 3.0 conference. I've had the great pleasure of uh, talking with Chris, working with Chris, having fun with Chris uh, for many years now, and I had to get him on the show because he is the CEO of Connect and Sell, and he has been the CEO for eight years now, but he didn't start there. And so I am so grateful to have you on the show to talk about how you became the CEO of Connect and Sell and how you grew sales. Welcome. Oh, wow, Alice, here I am. This is exciting. Yeah, I and you're just back from your honeymoon, which is really exciting. Oh yeah. Well, in, in one sense, you know, if you're really wise, you don't come back from your honeymoon. You return from the vacation and the honeymoon at home. I, I love that. I love that. I think that is awesome. And uh, it's exciting that you as CEO were able to take nine weeks off. And I'm sure that's something that every CEO would love to know how you did that. But We'll get to that a little bit later. I want to talk with you about how you became the CEO of Connect and Sell, but let's start with you just telling the audience exactly what it is that Connect and Sell does. Sure. You know, it's really hard to get people on the phone. It's getting harder and harder. Connect and Sell lets a sales rep push a button and talk to somebody on their list in three or four minutes with no effort. Simple. And so everyone out there who's saying cold calling is dead, cold calling is not dead, whatever you're going to say about it, if you are making cold outreach by phone, you need to have a tool like Connect and Sell, period. That's it. Because it's really hard to get people to answer the phone. That's it. That's it. You don't want to pay your reps to be phone jockeys. You want to pay them to be salespeople. Right. Pay them to talk to people who can buy from us. So, all right, well, let's let's roll back here to um, eight years ago and maybe a little bit before as well. When you found Connect and Sell and joined them, um, what were you doing right before that? So I was about to take a job with a company down in Tucson, Arizona, associated with the University of Arizona to run a a very exotic tech solar energy company that was... uh, The technology was invented by the world's greatest telescope maker. And I'm a physicist by background. Um, People tend not to know that unless they hang with me for a while and then they get tired of it. And so I was about to do that, but I had some nervousness about certain elements of the dynamics of that deal. And I happened to be introduced to Connect and Sell CEO, Sean McLaren, uh, just out of the blue, went and had a breakfast conversation with him. And I joined the company five minutes later. So you must have like instantly fell in love with what they're doing and why they were doing it. It was mind blowing to me. Sean told me what they were doing. And I asked two questions. One, is this real? Is it a product (laughs) or is it an idea? He said, it's a product. And I actually asked him three questions. Second, do you sell it or are you still giving it away or whatever? He says, no, we have paying customers. And third, is it at scale? And he said, yeah. And I said, "Uh, 
so tell me, you know, like, what's the unit? And he told me it's this thing called a navigated dial. How many do you do per year? And he said, well, about 7 million. And I said, Sean, if you did 7 million push-ups right now, we'd call that either scale or endurance. So you've got something going. I'm in. And he said, what do you mean you're in? And I said, well, I'm, I'm working for you now. And he said, uh, <laughs> what if I'm not hiring? <laughs> I said, Sean, this is America. It's a free country. I can work for whomever I want. Uh, you can decide to pay me or not. I advise that you pay me because I've heard that it stabilizes the employer-employee relationship. Correct. And you're going to want this to be stable. So it's stable, apparently, because here we are 11 and a half years later. How far in was he when you met him? How, how old was the company? The uh, company was uh, about four years since Sean had put money into it and kind of taken it from really a tiny, tiny startup to something that was very real. He had it venture financed at that point. So it was about four years in. So I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but I've been there for 11 out of the 15 years of the company's life. Interestingly, we have a number of employees who have been at the company longer than I have. Wow. That really speaks volumes, you know, and especially today when people are really having trouble attracting and retaining employees. So that really speaks volumes to the people uh, that founded the company, the vision that it's built on, the values and all of those things. Yeah, I suppose, you know, it's, it's so fun to have a product that instantly delivers like palpable value. It's not like, oh, install this piece of software and someday... <laughs> You know, with a workflow, your people will be able to X, Y, Z. It's like push a button, talk to somebody on your list. It's <laughs> happening right now. It's it's so immediate and visceral and scary. And it really is the first time people use it. I've measured heart rates of up to 162 beats a minute when somebody's yep. going to push the button for the first time. We haven't we haven't lost anybody yet. We had one panic attack and a guy had to be you know hauled away. Very sad, <laughs> but he made it. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, that you don't have products like that very often. And it attracts a certain kind of person who loves that immediacy of value. And it's yeah. like, it's not easy, though, because what you have then is, well, on one side, you got data, got to get your data in shape. And on the other side, you got conversations, you've got to be good at those. And neither one of those is easy. But this grunt work part, part of getting the conversation, that part goes away, you just talk to people. Yeah. So knowing that, you know, seeing that in, you went to work for them and I'm assuming that Sean did decide to pay you. And so, like you said, here you are 11 years later. Now, uh, what did the he, what did you do for the company when you first started? Well, I asked him, what do you need? And he said, I need a product guy. So I said, I'm your product guy. Cause I've done a lot of things. It's a long career. I've been at this for 42 years. I've done kind of everything except yeah. interestingly enough, in the software industry from 1979 to present, I've never actually been a bag carrying salesperson. Even though if you add up the deals that I've done, they total in the hundreds of millions of dollars that I've personally done, but I've, that's never been my job. So I've, yeah. I've always been a sales guy. Like when I was a fuller brush man, <laughs> knocking on doors in Phoenix, Arizona, 110 degrees out. I loved it. I loved doing that stuff. But, I, you know, it wasn't my, my, my thing to be a bag-carrying salesperson. So um, I, I just joined as the head of product. I became kind of the CTO. I became the head of marketing. Uh, Sean decided to make me a chief marketing officer at some point. I think that's a big mistake, but, you know, he wanted it. And uh, there you go. I mean, there's a lot of different jobs. You know, when you really think of an evolving company, 
they're not companies don't break down in their functions as neatly i think as org charts would have us right and when you're when you have a revolutionary product like when you have a disruptive product it's pretty straightforward you're going to come in at one third the price you're going to disrupt the market right with a good enough product but we have a revolutionary product which is inconvenient to have one of those (laughs) because people have to decide to do something differently it's not do the same thing cheaply it's to do something differently and that takes some mindset you know changes that's why gerhard and i are such buds right we're into this mindset thing and so it it's interesting when you look at something like that there's a lot of ambiguity every day within the evolution of the company and so your strict sort of departmental siloing that people are so used to just doesn't work you've got to have people who play multiple positions and who pay attention to what's going on across the company exactly and they can reach across and communicate because i see in so many companies where they have built these silos or departments or whatever you want to call them and people aren't crossing over it causes problems and it prevents sales from really being where they should be so i think that titles and org charts can sometimes really hold us back we got to dig in and get the work done and it sounds like that's what you do over there so um eight years ago you became the ceo and uh that was a natural progression and a little bit of um maybe, you know, some other uh, forces in the world that we won't talk about. Uh, But uh, there you were, uh, the CEO of the company. And now uh, you are tasked with really growing the company, really driving growth. And of course, that means driving sales growth. So uh, tell us about how, as you came into being the CEO, you really took a look at sales and maybe made some changes or or maybe just looked at the whole thing differently to get from where you were at that moment to where you are now, which is quite a bit farther ahead. Um, knowing that even though you never had the specific role of sales or sales leader, you really understand sales from your earlier days. Sure. Well, when I became CEO, we had been through a fairly interesting experience that left us essentially with very little cash and uh, a a big expense load monthly. And so this is not a small, this is is an interesting company. It has an operational weight to it. We have hundreds of people who navigate phone calls. So that's a fair amount of kind of operational heft inside this thing. Right. You know, people in a tech company who are cost of goods, it's not common. So uh, we run a mechanical Turk for those of you who know what one of those is. It's a, it's, this is a cloud machine in which people are doing tasks managed by technology. It's a very unusual sort of beast. So we had to get our house in order immediately. So we had to shrink headcount a lot mm. and, and yet grow sales. So that was the challenge. No money, shrink headcount, grow sales, manage all of our vendor relationships that provided us with these key resources and somehow square the, all those circles, right? So. Uh, I think the main thing we did well there was just we went fast. We did mm-hmm. all the headcount adjustments in one week and we were done. We just made a list who is essential, who's next most essential, who's next most essential, added them up, got to a cut line, said everybody below that's got to go. Now everybody's got to do these jobs. And I think that brought people together, which was good. Second, I had to put somebody in charge of sales because the person who was in charge of sales was no longer with the company as of that Wednesday. So what was I going to do there? So I, I took the guy who was running inside sales because we help inside sales do their thing, right? Connect and sell helps uh, 
SDRs, BDRs are called now back then inside salespeople talk to more people. So this guy had just joined us from another company running inside sales. And I called him up and I said, you're now the VP of sales and, and marketing. And he said, uh, I don't want to be the VP of marketing. And I said, well, the door has hinges on it so it can swing open so you can leave. <laughs> That's why we make doors like this. You can come in and you can go out, but I need somebody to do both. And he said, okay, I'll do both. It turned out to be a great move because we had immediate sales and marketing alignment in one person you achieved by organizational fiat, I suppose is a way to look at it. Yeah. And then the next thing that, that I did was I went to Denver, which was our sales center where we had our salespeople, most of our salespeople and just went there and hung out. So I moved from California effectively to Denver to spend my time on the floor, experiencing what they were experiencing because we, we had a very, um, kind of an evolution from a very junior sales team trying to do transactional deals that would lead to something and realizing the, the yield on that was really low. And so there was a transition going on and I figured I'd better go there. And so just, you know, physically showing up, participating in calls, being in those discussions, it was a tight little space in this sort of the old marijuana uh, dispensary in Denver, suite 420. And, uh, it was a funny place to be, but it was a great tight office and everybody was like all over each other, but we had one good conference room to hang out in. And it was just basically evolve, 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 but we had to sell. And I think that one of the things that made connect and sell work at that moment was the urgency of the moment. That is, we went from being what we should have been um, a, a wartime situation because revolutionary products are naturally wartime. So, um, you know, Hor um, Horowitz makes this point about wartime and peacetime CEOs. I really believe it in the hard thing about hard things, right? He, he says, look, there's two kinds of CEOs. There's peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs, and you better know which one you are. I am naturally a wartime guy. It's my thing. I like, I like uh, dynamic action, and I like having to think things through and actually, you know, like make changes. I, I don't. I don't like it when things are smooth. <laughs> what can I say? I accept it as best I can. So we had urgency. We had a war. It wasn't a war with a competitor. It was a war with the situation, but it brought everybody together. So I think those things really made a difference. And, um, and we got going pretty fast and started making lots of, lots of sales. And then we focused on making a sales machine. We own something that lets you make a sales machine. Talk to a lot of people. How do you wire that up so the sales machine works all the way through getting deals closed? So we worked on the elements of the sales machine to get from A to B. And it took about, say, 16, 17 months before we hit on the magic, which is this thing we call a test drive. So we stopped doing demos and we started letting our customers, our prospects, use Connect and Sell in full production for one day. Wow. And that was the breakthrough. Yeah. And those test drives are amazing. So, you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about how decisions had to be made quickly. Here you are, CEO. Decisions have to be made quickly. Don't prolong the pain. Let's get these decisions made. Move on to the next. And then you just got in the trenches, right? You just went out there 
with the troops as you were talking about being a wartime CEO, right? You went and saw what are they doing? How are they doing it? How can I help? You listened, you learned, and, and you dug into it. And as you said, the you know, coming forward with the new vision and what the company was going to do and, you know, having the downsizing and kind of brought everybody together for that common vision so that they could move forward with you. And the iterations that you went through, I don't think would have been possible if you hadn't actually been there doing that, right? So you watch what they were doing. It wasn't working, right? They were doing transactional sales, and not that well. And you're like, okay, we can't, we got to stop doing that. So how do we do it? We got to stop doing demos because demos aren't working. And you came upon this thing that um, I think you should explain to everybody this test drive, because I've seen you do it. It's phenomenal. And it is revolutionary. And I think that other CEOs can learn from this because there is a way that you can do this. You may not do it exactly the same way, but think about how could your company do something like this that would really be phenomenal for your customers to understand exactly what you do. So let's talk about the test drive because it is such a great sales tool. Yeah, the test drive is the beating heart of our company. We did one yesterday with a very large Japanese company that operates here in America with 47 people in the test drive. The test drive end-to-end took two days to set up, and that was getting all of their data and loading it up, all their lists. And it executed by itself yesterday with 47 people, setting 38 meetings, holding hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of conversations with people they wouldn't have held, and their management participating as coaches and observers. And now it's an easy discussion. Now it's like, what's next? Well, it looks like you have four people in the East and four people in the West that kind of are open-minded and want to learn, let's run a flight school and teach them to be great on the phone. It's a very natural next step, right? Right. So the test drive is full production, full production, real lists, real reps, real conversations. Tony Safoyan over at uh, SADA, the CEO there, on his podcast, he had me on and I asked him, Tony, didn't you guys make some money on your connect and sell test drive or something like that? And his VP, uh, Billy Franz, laughed and he said, Chris, we made tens of millions of dollars pipeline <laughs> in those three hours. Wow. I said, well, that's why you wouldn't let us out of the building without signing a deal, right? It's like, yeah, right. And there's still a customer. It was invented as, this is, I think, something that maybe I'm just peculiar in this way to use my mother's favorite word. I don't believe that it's possible to figure out what to do until you're doing something and feeling the pain of it not working. So the thing I was doing and feeling the pain of it not working was talking to a senior executive at a company on the East Coast, big, big company. And I loved her. Her name was Melody. I loved her. She was great. And on the fifth conversation that my rep had me helping out, right, because it was so senior, I said, you know, Melody, I never want to talk to you again. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, she said, don't you like our conversations? I said, yeah, and I'll go to my grave having never done business with you. So if we're going to do business together, we got to do something. How about we stop talking? I get on a plane. I'll have a customer success person show up and we'll run in production for a day. Let's call it an intensive test drive. So we just, it was invented to solve a problem, which was the endless set of conversations that tend to take place in larger companies in order to get from A to anywhere. 
And it was magic. I flew out there the next day. We set the thing up. We had one rep do the test drive. She sold something on the very first call. I mean, didn't just set a meeting. She actually sold something. The room went crazy. All these senior people are in there. Ah, like, and I thought, that's it. The emotions that it yeah. takes, the emotional journey that it takes to get to making a decision. If you can get that to go through excitement, fun, revelation, you know, oh, wow, this, then you have magic. Now we have a product that does that. So that's luck, right? But yeah. I think a lot of products, there's an aha in there somewhere and demos don't get to ahas because demos are with demo data, nor do free trials because they're not serious. To me, something that's not done in anger is not done at all. Huh. So that's our test drive. We do 500 of them a year. I want to do a thousand. That's what I drive on. My metric is test drives per day. And I don't mean per week and I don't mean per month. I mean per day. Yeah. And every day I look at how many test drives are set, how many test drives are run. I look at the results and I have a feel for the, how the company's heart is beating. And so that's what I focus on. Let's, I love that. Let's break this down um, for all those out there listening that have a complex sale, which is most of my listeners. Uh, you have a complex sale. It's complex because you got to get to the senior people in the organization to make the decision. There are lots of them who want to put their two cents in before something is purchased. They're spending a lot of money. Uh, they may be replacing something that they've used for a long time. So there's a lot of decisions around how that will be. There may be technical complexities. And now today also, there's a lot of people on the selling team that have to be involved and make decisions, right? So complex sales gotten even more complex. And so with your sale, to take to move it as you did from transactional to a you know, finding a customer for life kind of, you know, more collaborative sale, you had to think about a better way because otherwise, as you said, you could talk to Melanie for weeks, months, sometimes years, her and all of her decision makers, and still there has been no purchase. And we know that salespeople are stuck in this cycle with their teams, even when they bring their senior leaders and they bring their SEs and their SMEs and all the other initials that y'all have out there to use to help you close a deal. It's conversation after conversation, then a space because somebody gets you know, waylaid on some other project and then conversation and then more space and things just don't move along. When you do something like this test drive that Chris is explaining, you shorten the sales cycle almost to instant because what you're saying is, I get it. You need to see and feel what this is so you can buy it. And it's hard to explain. And there's so many other things around it. But if you see and feel it and it has results immediately, then you'll just make all the other stuff happen so that you can make this purchase and get the results that you need. And that's yeah. why the test drive works so beautifully. And it's a, exactly, it, and it's a tricky thing, right? What's happened in modern businesses, we've gone from products as product executes function to product as solution fits in system. And that's been the primary evolution of our economy over the last 40 years. It's very rare to buy anything that doesn't fit within an existing system, whether it's a system right. of processes right. or technology, always technology is involved. We all know that systems are always incompletely described on both sides. 
So how they're going to work together is actually unknown, if we're honest. Right. You can say, oh, it's seamless, blah, blah, blah. Those are just words. No the, such thing as seamless. <laughs> exactly. So the question, the question on the table really is, what's it going to be like to work together to solve this problem? That's actually the question your, your prospective customer is asking is, what's it going to be like for me, for me, the person who's putting my career on the line, yeah. for us to work together? And I don't learn that by you talking to me, the buyer. I don't. Because I know that everything you're saying is designed to move me along to a, a transaction. Therefore, everything you say, I'm going to resist, even though I'm very interested in solving the problem. So there's a breakthrough thing you can do, which is to go as quickly as possible, as soon as your credibility allows it, from talking to action that produces artifacts in the form of business outcomes and data. As soon as you do that, you've completely changed the game. Because your big competitor was do nothing. That's right. always your big competitor. And so, you know, that, and that competitor dominates all markets at all time, right? I mean, everybody talks about their competition. Yeah. Excuse me. Your competition right now, today, tomorrow, the next day, and forever is do nothing. Why? Because they're already solving the problem. Otherwise, you're not allowed to come in and help them solve the problem, right? This, there's a job to be done, and you're going to help them do that job better. So how do they gain trust not in you as a person, which you can establish in six, seven seconds on a cold call, but in what it's going to be like to work together and it's going to be good for their career. And I think the thing to do is, well, work together on something. And a lot of people hold back and go, no, 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 I ain't going to give you that unless you give me something. Trust me, they're giving you something if they're giving you the time and attention of people to do a production act. Yeah. They're giving you a lot. Right. So just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it sounds like you started building a sales organization based on one, using your own product or, you know, drinking your own champagne. So you said, okay, so we're going to do this. We're going to use our own tool and we're going to show people that it works firsthand. Secondly, uh, we're going to build a structure in our sales organization that allows us to do test drives. And as you mentioned, you want, you're measuring test drives per day. So you have to build an organization. So that probably doesn't look like most of our sales organizations. One salesperson making calls, getting appointments, talking to the people, moving the, right? So what does that look like in your sales organization to get a test drive booked? How does that start? And then what does it, what does the, group of people who provide that, what does that look like? Well, we ended up evolving to having a two-tier structure, not because we liked it, we actually didn't at first, but because our customers were going to that, having an SDR team and then having AEs that are taking the meetings. So we said, well, we need to experience what our customers are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So let's organize like they are organizing, even though we don't like it. So we built an SDR team which we called something else inside sales reps or something. And their job was to set appointments for our account executives. We also included in the account executive set, the executive chairman, who was the CEO, our VP of sales who changed over time, but has always been in the mix and myself. And the reason we did that is we wanted to feel the pain of being an AE because AEs complain endlessly about the meetings set for them by others. So one of the great ways to handle that is just to be there taking meetings just like anybody else. So that 
kind of defuse the cultural issue that we saw around the two-tier model. Yeah. As soon as we did that, we realized that tier one, the SDRs, are talker listeners. And talker listeners are never data people, and they're never reader writers. That, that's just like life. It's like, get over it, everybody. There is no such thing as a person who talks, listens, reads, writes, and does data who isn't a CEO. Right. Or a future CEO. <laughs> that's it. So you, right. those are not your, that's not your talent pool for SDRs. So you got to make a choice. Am I going to get talker listeners? Am I going to get reader writers? Am I going to get data people? And what we do in the SDR world now, by and large, is let's go for all three and we don't get anything. So we said, no, we're going to build the data for them. So I'm a big believer that your list is your strategy and the list is people, not just companies. Right. And so we have, a, we formed a data team. And the data team makes lists and keeps lists up to date. And so all of our targeting is done, expressed as lists that are fed into our system. So our SDRs literally do this. They push a button, they talk to somebody, they either set a meeting, they set a follow-up, or they get some information. Okay, pause there for a second. So I want to unpack that and make sure everybody's got it. So they, Chris probably believes a lot like I do that this whole SDR function is mm, kind of wonky, but all right. Uh, that's what our customers are doing. So we're going to do it so we understand it, right? So they set out to hire these people who would do this task of having the initial conversation and setting the appointment. Remember, connect and sell dials for them. So they push the button, the dialer's dialing, it's real human beings doing the work. Then they say hello and flip the call to the to the SDR, the SDR's all the information they need is on the screen. They get the call, they talk and listen. And they have very specific talk tracks that make sure that they can pique the interest and curiosity of the person on the other end of the line. So that's set. Now, once those uh, appointments are set, there are people who take those appointments, which are some senior leaders of the company as well as other AEs. Um, backing up for just one, because I want to mention, the part that they don't make their SDRs do is write, be great copywriters, right? right. And write emails and send them and, and, and do that stuff. And they also don't make their SDRs be data people. Their SDRs are not building lists. They, they have a data team for sales that builds those lists, put all the data in. So then the SDRs are ready to go, push the button, talk to pe real humans, right? And say something intriguing, set appointments and send those over to AEs, again, who some are the senior team. All right, so there we go for that. So now one, one of the AEs takes it and they have a, a live human who's interested. Where does it go from there to get that test drive set up? So now it goes down one of two paths. Either the person, the target attends the meeting or not. So if they don't attend the meeting, that goes into a reschedule machine that's made up of the SDRs also. So there's magic lists that are for rescheduling, which is our highest yield list, by the way, and the most neglected list by most companies. Yes. Rescheduling is your number one source of new business. <laughs> These are people who are worth meeting with who are too busy to meet. They must be the best. Right. And they need to be treated as the best, not as the worst. I, I know so many reps who go, Oh, they wouldn't attend the meeting. Oh, I, I'm so offended. It's like, that's fantastic. They didn't attend the meeting. They must be busy. Right. Let, and we know they answer the phone. 
whoa, a submarket of people who are too who are busy and important who we know answer the phone. And they committed to it. So it's the easiest conversation in sales. Hey, I see we had something on the calendar yesterday for nine o'clock. Something important must have come up for you. When would be a better time to talk? Yeah. That's the easiest conversation to have in sales. And we just make a machine out of it. We also make a machine out of all of the folks who didn't say they wanted to attend a meeting, but we still want to talk to. We just talk to them once a quarter and we know what to say. Hey, when we spoke back in March on the 11th, you said that you were headed off on a nine month honeymoon is now a better time, right? Whatever it happens to be. It was a nine week honeymoon, folks, not a nine month honeymoon. <laughs> I dream, I dream. So, it, it, our idea is, I, I'm an old manufacturing guy. I came out of the world of building factories. I built, like I was the architect of the software that ran Sun Microsystems, big distribution oh, yeah. centers. So I believe in the theory of constraints because everybody who does anything in manufacturing knows you're trying to find the bottleneck for the entire system and there's only one. You're trying to characterize it. And then you're trying to come up with an investment thesis for widening that bottleneck. And then you invest and widen the bottleneck. And then you stand back and watch and see where the bottleneck went. That's how you make things better, right? So that's what we did, how we came up with this. We said, oh, wait, the bottleneck moved to rescheduling. How can we invest in that in order to widen the bottleneck? Well, make lists automatically of people who did not attend meetings and make those the highest priority list for the next day's calling. Simple, right? but tends not to be done. So right. our view is that it's not the salespeople. All of us are part of a machine that we're building and evolving. And the idea of the lone wolf salesperson who's not part of the machine is just not part of our company. Everybody enjoys being part of the machine because we get to do what we're great at and we don't have to do crap we don't like doing. Right, right. And here's the thing. If you left it up to sales reps to go and do the callbacks to those people who didn't show up, it would get pushed off and pushed out and it wouldn't happen. But when you present them with, hey, here's your list to call today. These are all the people who uh, missed their appointments. Call them and here's what you say to them and get them set up. And then they start, they have so much success that now they recognize, oh my gosh, we have, this is such an important job. We have to keep doing it. And the whole machine makes it work, which, which I love. So let's, you know, let's say you get on the call and, and they're excited and they made, they made the call and you talk to them. How do you move them towards the test drive versus the traditional, okay, so who else is involved in the sales? Should we get them on the call? How do we, you know, what's the next steps? How do we move this forward? What do you need? You know, so what happens in, in your world? Yeah. So we kind of follow what, what Oren Claff teaches. So Oren says, we've got to, we got to establish status alignment with somebody that we're their peer. And then we need to let them feel comfortable that we're an expert. And then we need to give them a piece of advice about you know, kind of like what the next thing is to do. So we actually do show the product, but we don't show it in a demo. We show it live as our people are using it. So we get on with the prospect and you know, there's a little back and forth. And then it's like, hey, would you like to see this thing actually running? Because this is how we run our company. And there's a, a, a thing we call it that's a leaderboard that's running at all times. And it's, we just go into it and go, so, you know, here's, here's Alice and Alice has been using Connected Cell for two hours, 18 minutes and 37 seconds today. And during that time, she's had 41 conversations and she's set three meetings. Alice's goal is 2.7 meetings a day. So she's in bonus territory, probably feels pretty good. How much work did she do? Well, she 
pressed a button, you know, 41 times. That's all she's done. So her fingers aren't falling off. And each time she waited for, what does it say? Three minutes, 12 seconds for the next conversation. Here's what she didn't do. She didn't dial the phone, navigate phone systems and waste her time, you know, and, and brain power and emotions. Uh, what does that say? 652 times. Whatever it is, that is that little Warren calls it a flash roll. Let somebody know, you know, we're experts at this, right? That our rep is an expert. Then the question really is, look, do you want to experience it? Instead of talking about it, would you like to just experience it? We have this thing called a test drive. Your team uses it. It's full production for a full day. You make money doing this. It's not a demo. It's live. It's done in anger. Calling real prospects, making real money. And it's on us. So you know, the setup is pretty quick. It's a you know, one call, get some lists. You'd say who's going to do it. So we actually very deliberately don't sell the product. We just sell the test drive. Which and is of no cost to them. No cost. They just Except have to do product, the work to get it, cost in time because they have to get the, do the work to set it up, get, get you the data, get the sales reps lined up that are going to do the test and have some senior people around watching. Right. Right. And actually, I won't even let my people call it a test. It's a test drive, like driving a fast car. So if, if I were going to sell you a Tesla, I could talk endlessly about stuff or I can say, hey, let's get in the car, you in the driver's seat. We have a little road here that's pretty safe. It's not very long. Put your foot on the floor. Right. Your eyeballs are flattened by the acceleration. That's the that's the core of this whole Tesla experience. Everything else is like it's a cool computer that you can do things in. That's what this is. It's truly a test drive. It's the experience. It's this, this thing we have at Connect and Sell is so fast. I mean, to give you an idea of how fast, average rep, 15 dials, 20 dials an hour, navigating, updating CRMs, blah, blah, blah. Connect and Sell, 200 dials an hour effortlessly. It's not a little bit faster. It's... 10, exponentially 20, faster 20 times faster right and yet the experience is calm you don't do anything you press a button you pet your cat you drink your coffee you send emails bloop, and you talk to somebody <laughs> okay so i love this so you're actually just making it happen for them they can see it clearly and so what's the conversion rate then for for your for your team that puts up these test drives so once a test drive has happened the conversion rate's about 37%. And for reasons that are mysterious to all of us, it stays at 37% no matter what. It's like Planck's constant or the speed of light or something. It's just, it is. We're happy with that number because we want false positives going into the test drive. I'm a huge believer that when you're running any organization and running sales especially, you have to love false positives and you have to hate false negatives. If And... and we teach salespeople, oh, avoid the false positives, qualify early, blah, blah, blah. Trust me, they don't know enough to qualify early. Right. Take folks one step further and let them qualify themselves yeah. and eat the cost of the false positives as part of your marketing budget. Right. So this, this distinction between sales and marketing dollars, I think, is often kind of BS. You learn about the market by engaging the market. If you engage the market with 100% success, I know one thing you're learning you're learning that you're not engaging enough in the market because you're not getting to the edge of it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it's not for everybody and it's good for them to see that for themselves, right? So they do the test drive and either it is for them clearly 
and that's the 37% that moves forward and you've got them, right? There's no more, let's talk some more about it. Let's do, you know, it's like, Hey, let's make this happen. You know, get the senior executive involved that needs to make it happen and, and make it go. Right. So that just happens a lot more quickly. The sales cycle is shorter of the percent that don't, uh, don't go forward after the initial test drive. Do you find that some do it later on when they go, okay, this is really cool, but we are absolutely not ready for this yet. Do they grow into it and come back to you? Sure. The bigger the company, the more often that happens. So the, what, the test drive we did yesterday with the 47 people, that was actually a second test drive because there had been a major reorg after the first one. Uh -huh. So something I teach enterprise sellers, and I've been doing enterprise for ever since I was a child, I think, that the enterprise is not that person you're talking to. It's this big dynamic beast that's going to reorg once a year or thereabouts. And so you have new players and you have to be aware of when are they going to reorg? Like these guys reorged in June. So now it sounds great. The person we're working with just became president of America. Fantastic. Except that means that person was super busy from the day that happened until things settled down enough that they could come back and go, okay, we haven't forgotten. We're, we're now ready to, to do something bigger. My next challenge will be to shrink the first deal so that it's a clean pilot, what I call a shining star. Because I also think that once you get in and transact in the modern world, you've, you've just starting. You're, you're going to have a long relationship. Everything's renewals, everything's upsell, everything's the future. So how do you start in a way that establishes for sure that value is being delivered, especially if there's a human element? Start small, make sure that it's the best, whatever the best is, measure everything, and then get to a point you know, where that pilot or that we call it a shining star is shining, right? where it's actually lit. Then from there, you can build out the relationship. I think there's a lot of be in a hurry. Let's do the big enterprise deal right after the whatever. It's like, how could they know enough to do that rationally? Yeah, yeah. Plus there's, exactly, there's so many um, details around implementation and we don't want to plug it in and then have low user adoption. We want to plug it in and have it be what you call a shining star, right? That people are using it and it's working and then grow from there. Um, I see so many implementations where there's such low user adoption and it comes to renewal time and guess what? <laughs> Not happening. So if we start small and do a phenomenal job and make that shining star, then we have so many opportunities in front of us. Um, but you're right. People go for the big, big deal right off the bat sometimes when it's probably not the best thing to do, especially when there's user adoption to be considered. Yeah. So here we are uh, getting to the end of our time, but I do want to talk to you about where you are uh, now and where you want to grow to. And you mentioned, um, and I, I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to let you say 500 test drives to 1,000 test drives. Was that per week? week or what was the it's per, time per year? So we do about 500 test drives a year. These are full production experiences for companies. It's, it's as though you sold 500 deals a year and you implemented them. It's quite a thing. <clears throat> I want to get to a thousand. I think it's a, it's the next natural milestone. We have a new product that's uh, that we include in the test drives and is it a little easier to buy? We've, we've done two years of, uh, to, of how to put it. We've trained a machine. Uh, a big AI machine with two years worth of data, $120 million of data. So we can actually offer a less expensive product that is good enough so we can disrupt ourselves. 
and it's taken off. It's grown at 50% per month right now. Wow. So it's in its fifth month. We never launched it. We just let our salespeople sell it and it went off like a rocket ship. So it's like, okay, that's interesting. So that's one of the drivers. And the other thing is, you know, we talked about data. We now have 132 million contact records in addition to our 7 million highly curated people that are worth talking to because you don't want to talk to burger flippers. You want to talk to people who can buy things. And we're offering a comprehensive data service as part of what we do. So we've always done data enhancement as part of test drives, but now we're going to make it part of the deal. So I think all those things will be the driver. I think product always ends up leading because you've got to solve real problems or else you're just kind of faking it. So as you move from 500 a year to a thousand a year, what infrastructure changes are you going to need? Uh, changes in team. You already have 500 or so people. How many more people do you think this will take? Well, the people on the inside of the system, my guess is that it doesn't grow. We've made this technology oh. breakthrough with this machine. And I actually think that they'll stay stable or whatever. That part's easy anyway. That part's always scaled. Easy for me, complex for them, but that's part of the organization that knows how to do that. I think we scale a little in sales team. We only have 10 sellers, so we'll probably go to 16, 17, 18 to get to 1,000. Test to drive delivery people, we actually only have two. They can do a couple a day. They're amazing. So we'll probably scale that to three or four. Uh, I think our, <clears throat> our training team that teaches people how to talk on the phone, we call it the conversation optimization team, that'll grow from three to something bigger. Very great specialists in the nuances, second by second, millisecond by millisecond of conversations. We teach people to do that. And then customer success always has to grow somewhat linearly with the customer base. That's kind of it. Um, we won't grow our overhead. We have nobody who does. We might add a marketing person someday. We have no marketing people in the company. What can I say? Um, we don't. We That doesn't mean you either. don't do marketing, but you know, some others, it's spread across to others. Right. We talk to 85,000 people a year wow. out of our SDR team. And, um, you know, that's marketing, right? Talking to people can be marketing too. Yeah. So leave us with just, you know, one of your amazing thoughts. You've always got uh, so, so many great things to share and I appreciate it so much, but just one of your amazing thoughts that CEOs can, can think about in order to move towards, um, you know, maybe changing some things up in their organization, looking at things differently so that they can do better than what they're doing today and really move towards getting greater results than maybe they ever thought they could get. Sure. I mean, my, my view is mathematically, almost every company is bottlenecked right above the top of their funnel. They're just not having enough conversations. They're not having enough false positives. So I, to me, my advice to CEOs is focus on the flow rate, the daily flow rate of meetings set with folks who are we're talking to and drive that with conversations. And the reason is it's all transparent at that point. Yeah. He, I was talking to Hang Black two nights ago. She's the she's marvelous, like incredible person. And we were having drinks with her over at the Edgewater because she was- That's so Edgewater. funny. Um, I She's a very good friend of mine. And um, I would- <laughs> You must have talked to her just after I did, because she would have said, I just talked to Chris Beal. Well, she said, say hi to Alice. So I'm saying <laughs> hi to you on this. And 
And uh, we were we were having this discussion. She said, you know, I was an SDR for a day. So this is the function that needs to flow those meetings, right? Yes. And I did it for a day. And, and she said it was exhausting because you had all these different systems to work with. And I said, how interesting. My SDRs work with no systems whatsoever right. except for one. They push a button. They talk to somebody. Everything else is done for them. And our expectation is they set 2.7 meetings per day each. And that flow rate of meetings makes the entire business predictable. So to me, simplification to something that's repeatable and human that yeah. generates trust and business is key. And what do you measure? The flow rate of meetings. That's it. You don't have to that's measure it. a million things and they don't have to do a million things. That's it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing with us how your company sells and how you've grown the company. Um, so many, you know, really intriguing things to think about based on what you've told us. Cause I know a lot of companies are making sales harder than it has to be, unfortunately. <laughs> and I know you've seen it too. So, um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, so delightful to be here. I could talk with you all day and well into the night, but you know, I have likewise. We'll have to we'll have to have uh, a meal together soon and and uh, catch up. So thanks again. All right, thanks, Alice. Thanks for tuning in to Sales Talk for CEOs. You can find me at alicehyman.com. Be sure and connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you heard the show. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe, write a review, and share the show with another CEO.